Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by a good friend of ours, Olivier Morel. Olivier is a French and American scholar and filmmaker. He is the director of several feature-length nonfiction films and documentaries. He is the author of essays, including one graphic novel with the artist and writer Maël. His academic work, as well as his films, highlight the importance of creation and the arts, music, literature, cinema, photography, in the perception of historical events. He is a joint assistant professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater and the Department of Romance, Languages, and Literatures at the University of Notre Dame. Good to see you, Olivier. It's good. It's good to see you again, Vince. I know. And I know Sergio is not far. He's behind the camera. He is behind the uh, camera. Which, which is a position that I envy immensely because I like <laughs> to be behind the camera. Although I'm behind the camera, but you are behind the camera. And I mean, it's like it's Zoom, right? Yes. But um, I just want to say um, uh, a word of gratitude for all that you do. Because ah. uh, honestly, uh, Park... Park media, all the things that you do are those pockets of freedom that we need. And I had been looking forward to this moment. Um, like I always enjoy, you know, uh, the work that you do in with all of its dimensions, uh, you know, with the media today. I think it was a brilliant idea to do that in this time of um, confinement, you know, lockdowns and so forth. But uh, I, I also, I believe that uh, if there's one way that we could deal with uh, with the present, that is also take action in this context, it's uh, through through art, uh, through expression, and through the things that you that you guys do. So I, I just want to say thank you. Ah, well, thank you for that. Um, well, first, how have you been holding up? I mean, I think this is a reasonable question to ask everyone. Well, that's that's a very good question, and it's also I just want to mention what what just happened when you read this this biography, you know, because um, in so many ways I'm interested in in the way uh, things are shaped narratively. That is how we tell stories, right? How we tell stories about ourselves is part of that, and it's part of that narrative. Um, uh, I'm grateful that you read the biography, but at the same time, I'm I, I am always estranged <laughs> when I when I hear a biography, not just mine, because I'm always thinking, what are the things that we're hiding here? <laughs> you know, for example, <laughs> and that's 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 an idea that I have about about writing in general. That we always write in order to to replace something that to that is to unveil and cover at the same time. And I think, I mean, that's why I, I love uh, fiction. That's why I love literature. That's why I love writing and, and films. It's because when they are good, it's not always the case, but when they are good for me at least, um, they don't hide the fact that this is a version of, of reality and that it's while handling our relationship to reality that we become human ultimately. And that's really the standpoint of, of my work when you read the biography, this segment in which, you know, is about how art is helping us, you know, to have glasses on and to, to, to read, you know, uh, the present, which means it's not just the sole purpose of, of understanding our world and what surrounds us, but it's also being able to anticipate, you know, like to predict to see that there are so many signs around that could lead to this path or this one. And whenever we do that, we anticipate. I mean, it's also our daily life, right? I mean, what am I going to do, you know, <laughs> for the meal, you know, this evening? And we, we always engage in this, like, it activates something that is related to fiction. And when fiction uh, brews like that, when we make projects, uh, reality becomes tangible in in something that can uh, either destroy something or create. And of course, I'm on the side of creation. So are you when you do what you're doing now, uh, which is a way to address all the restrictions uh, that block us from being able to um, to fantasize beauty and creation in this world. That is all the, um, you know, the structures in society, all the mechanism 
uh, that basically shut our mouth, you know? Uh, and, and so I've been interested, of course, in this context, uh, in my research lately, both in um, philosophy and literary studies and in film, because this is my, you know, double uh, identity as a scholar, right? Um, I've been interested in, um, in um, how, um, you know, propaganda works mostly lately. Really, I mean, it's it's really about uh, how do we deal with highly oppressive social and political structures, um, and how do we deal with decision making on how to take action, how to get involved, how to organize, uh, to what extent, with whom, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. or how do we uh, also deal personally with the toxicity of the present, for example. Uh, with uh, loved ones who uh, want to go back to school in person, for example, uh, when it's probably not a good time to be infected because we are taking of someone, we are taking care of someone at home who might uh, not deal well with the infection, or ourselves, or even our kids, whether we know or don't know it. You know, all those things uh, play a critical role during this time of pandemic. So, and and uh, authoritarianism, right? So we are dealing with this double challenge uh, in a way that is totally unprecedented, but in some ways I've been working on the subject for so many years that it's, it, it's, a, it's a very bizarre moment, right? When you're asking these questions, uh, how are you holding on? Well, yes, that's a big question, clearly. <laughs> Right. No, it, it is. I mean, I one of the contradictions that I've found, I mean, I haven't been saying this to people too often because, well, a lot of people are having a rough time holding on. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with, as you know, class, uh, geographical location, uh, national origin. I mean, there's a middle, there's a million. I mean, we've seen poor uh, immigrant communities, black communities, indigenous communities, particularly ravaged by the by the pandemic. And yet at the same time, at least for me individually, uh, I've said this a few times, I've said it routinely to Sergio, but this time has been in a very contradictory way, probably one of the most productive, interesting, thought provoking, reflective periods that I can remember in a very long time. And a lot of that has to do with the kind of lifestyle we lived prior to this, which was event, event, action, this meeting, event, this going on. I mean, every day it was like, you know, events at the space. And and you know how it goes. You, it's hard to take that step back and put on a different pair of glasses uh, if you're just on that path day in and day out. And so one of the things that I found interesting about this period, and it's forced us to do different work like doing this program, which activates a different part of your brain. I mean, when you're planning all of the time, we're always trying to find ways to bring all of this together. It's in the very name that we created, you know, politics, art, your roots, the culture. And, but sometimes it is very difficult. I mean, you see how all of these things overlap and connect. At the same time, when you're planning and doing things, it's like a different part of your brain is working. And then now we have this time to like, I can't tell you how many books I've read over the last four months, how many essays, how many essays I've written compared to the last four months before that. Um, and yeah, it's jarring. I think the different realities in which we live is it's jarring for me to, to so for instance, and I'll sort of let you respond to this. I mean, what I find most jarring about this is the social reality that for some people, this is a very uh, interesting, in some ways, wonderful time. I mean, I've talked to people who are like, this is a break. Thank God I got to spend more time with my family. An hour later, I can hear from a friend who's like, I think I'm ready to strangle my husband <laughs> and I want to throw my kids out the window, <laughs> but I love them all. Um that I've found very jarring, trying to live now in, an, in this new reality, which necessitates some level of physical distancing. But we were already prior to this living in such a alienating sort of cultural reality. And we were chatting a little bit before the official interview, but 
what this has done has really exposed a lot of deep-seated, I think, problems in this culture and society. I mean, so th- there was like this idea that, oh, there's a pandemic. I don't know where we get this idea that during crises, people are just going to come together and everything's going to be wonderful. Um, but it actually reminds me, I've been sort of using a play on Donald Rumsfeld's quote. I think you'll remember this, but during the sort of the height of the insurgency, this is like 2004, 2005, the Bush administration was under tremendous pressure from the media and the anti-war movement. And they were questioning Donald Rumsfeld about the sort of um, equipment resources that soldiers had and Marines had in Iraq. And Donald Rumsfeld said, you know, you go to war with the army that you have, not the one you wish you had. And so what I've been telling people during this pandemic, people who are surprised by any number of things that are happening, is that you go into a pandemic with the society and culture you have, not the one you wish you had. And so what what this has done is not like you you hope, like there's all these people who are hoping that people would come together. If they're not coming together under normal circumstances, there's nothing that leads me to believe that under dire circumstances they're going to bring people together. And I'm sure you know too, you know, I mean the literature shows that it's not, it's not the case that people necessarily come together during pandemics. Pandemics, in fact, usually are quite the opposite, where people, there's more divisions in society. And, and so anyway, I, I wonder how you are sort of processing the element that you brought up in your, in your statement, which is this interplay between dealing with society, this new reality that we have, but then also individually, subjectively trying to stay sane trying to maintain relationships, trying to maintain some semblance of like love and compassion at a time when it seems like those things are, you know, very hard to tap into. Well, the thing is, um, what is absolutely fascinating here is that, and it's a structure of events that uh, a philosopher who also happened to be a friend of mine, Jacques Derrida, often, very often mentioned as long as this event, as the pandemic, uh, was unpredictable. I mean, a year ago, we could not have uh, guessed that we would be here talking about that today. At the same time, and this is a structure that still fascinates me, uh, we knew that it was possible, that it could happen. Um, We knew because, for example, if you open suddenly, right, (laughs) if you open the long history of cinema, which is not so long, but it's already long enough that we've had already many films about pandemics, right? That everyone suddenly was watching back in March and April when uh, the lockdown down, or the discussion about the lockdown, the so-called lockdown was taking place, right? Um, And all of a sudden there were people who were also opening books about pandemics and how like the coming plague was coming, right? But it's also interesting since you've mentioned uh, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, it brings us back to um, our generation. And especially I I have, um, you know, I have respect and uh, compassion for your generation. That is you, Vince, Sergio, and your friends uh, who reached the age of, you know, 18, 20, when 9-11 happens, right? Then there's the war. And then you enter the workplace, um, most of, of your generation enters the, enters the workplace when the great uh, you know, economic downturn or recession begins in 2008. And now you, have ch- you, you are old enough you know, to have children and many children who are uh, in schools, right? And so in these three events, um, you are hit the hardest, you know, among, and I think it's the first generation. And I, I, I say it very cautiously, of course, because we might find tons of counterexamples. But at this scale, when a whole generation in the entire American society is hit three times by something that is dramatically changing your lives, uh, I think this is, this is prompting America to go through a major cultural, very deep cultural and and social change. I don't know how it will translate politically, which is the big question here. 
I'm very pessimistic about that aspect, if you want to know. And I'm in line with what you said about whether the pandemic is going to bring anything good, you know, from the political perspective. And I would say more about sovereignty here, right? Uh, about how the state operates and how the government uh, believes in, in itself and implements, you know, rules and laws that are more on the oppressive side than anything else than ever before. And this is what we are seeing with Trump, right? So, but I think, I mean, the great novelty here, again, this is something that we could predict, but that was unpredictable. This, always this same structure, and this defines, you know, historical events for Derrida, right? The fact that um, we could not predict that your generation, and of course, us, right, in a way, uh, would be hit so deeply. Like, I mean, I think there are not that many examples in the American history when every single life American resident of this country, and I hate to just say Americans because it also should include those who are not American citizens, right? So all the people who live on, in this country, on, on this continent, are hit by the pandemic. This is rare in history, that we have events that really deeply, completely modify the lives of people, even those who deny this reality of the pandemic. Well, in the way they deny, they are still hit by the pandemic, right? And their denial is a symptom. It's, it's not just a fact, it's not just a reaction, it's, it is also a symptom of this malady that is affecting everyone, right? This pandemic of the spirit, this, this malady of the spirit that affects all of us in this pandemic is a part of the pandemic, right? And so that's the idea that um, not everyone is hit, but everyone is involved, right? And concerns, concerned. And I think, I mean, that's, that's, that's the basis on which I've, I mean, like I said, you know, I've been working on this, on this notion of, uh, um, propaganda and the repression of reality in the U.S. Uh, for a while, right? And I think it's not an accident that the communities who are not in this denial of reality mode uh, that popped on the scene with this beautiful uh, movement after the horrible lynching of, of uh, George Floyd. That is uh, African Americans, Native Americans, you know, all kinds of oppressed communities who know that they have been oppressed, whose history is the history of oppression. They don't deny this reality. They don't deny reality. And that's why I think there are also this enlightening, uh, you know, um, movement and group in our society that make me uh, more hopeful, right? Because, because we live in a very dark time and, and they are saving, I mean, back to the question, you know, how are you holding up with this? Well, I, I, should, lay, I should say that this Black Lives Matter uh, movement all across the nation and the world, because it, it also impacts uh, other countries like, you know, the country where I was born, France um, and Europe. Uh, there's, there's a lot of hope and, and very positive vibes here. And that is, that has been really something that really saved my, you know, because I also got involved in the way I could, right? But um, th this, this is uh, something helpful. Same for us. Yeah. I mean, we were, I think, feeling very uh, down, dispirited. Um, but coming from the perspective that we're coming from, being so... Uh, deeply involved with organizing efforts, I think part of, it was interesting, on the one hand, I think we had a very similar reaction, that we were happy, in fact, to see people uh, standing up and fighting back. So my friend Michael uh, reminded me of this as this was going on, and you know, immediately, the way Sergio and I process this is like, how do we make it more effective? What could we be doing differently? What could we, I mean, so there's always this weird thing where on the one hand, we want to appreciate the moment because thank God there was people who stood up and did something. Now, imagine if all of this would have happened and there would have been nobody doing anything for the last four months. I mean, I would have been, my spirit would have been on the verge of just being totally shattered. 
So to see people still have that in a culture where people seem at times very passive, very alienated, very isolated from one another, um, to see that Americans still had that sort of fire burning that's like, you know, and again, as you mentioned, not surprising the communities that are disproportionately showing up, particularly young people. I mean, so I think about this as well. I think you articulated this well, painted this sort of picture for my generation. Now I'm at an age, I'm 36 now, um, and I'm at an age where I'm now talking with friends with dealing with people who are 18, 19, 20, 22, 24, and now seeing this generation come along where I don't know what's, what's worse. Our generation, it probably was worse for our generation only because we still, there were still a lot of that ideology from the 80s and 90s that was still like, you can make it, you can do it, you could be an entrepreneur, get your degree, and you're going to make money. Now, though, so I think that heartbreak is worse because we saw something on the horizon, but it turns out that there it was just a, a mirage. <laughs> and then on the other hand, though, for the younger people we know, it's quite terrible because there was never they, they are born into a situation where they're like everything sucks. They're like the president sucks, the culture sucks, uh, technology sucks. I mean, they like they look around and they're just like this. Everything is fucked. And and you mentioned um, uh, the pandemic, uh, these nine eleven, these things that that have really colored our lives since you know for the last two decades. But I'm also thinking, and, and of course you asked the question, how is this going to manifest politically? I think that is the question to ask. But then there's these underlying things that we now don't talk about as much as we were before the pandemic. I mean, Sergio and I have been talking about like climate change. Like climate change is there. It's happening. It's already impacting people around the globe, but it's going to become even more intense. So here's one of these things that's kind of like haunting us. That's there. It's out there. We know it's there. But getting back to your point about denying reality, it's like, I mean, one of the problems that we face is it seems to us that we live in this very childish culture. So we have to find a way, like dealing with how many Americans have reacted to this pandemic, it reminds me in the way that like we would have reacted as teenagers to our parents telling us not to do something or that, you know, we were trying to like, you know, it, it just seems very immature and very childish. I don't know how in the midst then of a pandemic that you try and sort of reverse that course. Um, you know, what can you do culturally during this time is another big question. You know, what is possible? Um, I think that's a question. It's it's so interesting that you're saying that because I have a, I have a text that is always very close to me. Uh, it's been closer lately than ever. And I will quote and I will tell you who's writing after because it's just right in line with what you just said. Okay, uh, it reads, I quote, I am speaking as a member of a certain democracy in a very complex country, the US, which insists on being very narrow minded. Simplicity is taken to be a great American virtue along with sincerity. One of the results of this is that immaturity, which is the word that you just used, immaturity is taken to be a great virtue too in America. So that someone like, let's say, John Wayne, who spends most of his time on screen admonishing Indians, was in no necessity to grow up, right? There's a picture of him, right? That's John Wayne. And you know that John Wayne, a text by John Wayne, uh, resurfaced recently because yeah. he, he was an absolute disgusting racist. Yeah. Whenever over the past years I've I've gone through uh, this airport like in Orange County, which is John Wayne Airport, there's a big statue of John Wayne. This statue is ready to fall, right? And this is one <laughs> of the beauties of the movement that we've seen, right? That uh, you know topple those those statues because I mean the fact that John Wayne is considered like this very masculine, oppressive figure of the American hero and depicted here as the, the you know, the epitome of immaturity, right? Um, who was in no necessity to grow up. Well, this, this text is by uh, James Baldwin, right? The great African-American writer, James Baldwin. And um, I mean, there are so many other things. I mean, I was, I 
you know, thought about uh, the denial of reality as he depicts it, depicts it, right? That's why I was saying, like, um, we live in this time of a great denial of reality that is absolutely unprecedented in the history of the world, but in the history of America, I mean. Uh, but it's always been there. It's always been there. And the entire uh, work by James Baldwin is built around this notion that he could not deny this reality, although he was growing up thinking he was the cowboy and not the Indians. And at some point in his childhood, he realized, and he writes about it, right? That's why I'm mentioning it, that he is in fact the, the Indian who's being uh, slaughtered by, by um, you know, by the Americans, you know, in the Western movies. And that is when this notion of denying uh, or denial of reality, uh, you know, pops for him. And I think, uh, I mean, the idea is that there are communities around in the U.S. who are really saving us from this denial. And I think, I mean, this has a very long history in the history of the U.S. because the entire country is built on those, uh, on those massacres, right? On the genocide of uh, Native Americans and, and slavery that is the destruction of a, of a people uh, that built the United States, uh, the slaves. Um, and... Uh, which is why also uh, Baldwin says, and I take it literally, it's literal, I am the cotton picker, you know. Like he writes in um, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, this text I just quoted uh, is posthumous. He was writing this text when he, uh, when he passed away. Um, his entire work revolves around this notion, right? Um, so yeah, I know I was I was talking about this aspect because I think that among the great discoveries that uh, have been made on on propaganda and uh, on authoritarianism is when Anna Arendt, you know, the author, the German German Jewish philosopher who uh, who escaped uh, Germany in 1941 and, and taught in the U.S. for a long time. She came to Notre Dame. To the University of Notre Dame once, by the way, because she was also teaching in Chicago at some point. Uh, one of the great discoveries that she makes is that uh, one of the characteristics of dictatorships mm -hmm. and authoritarian regimes is the standardization of masses. That is uh, uh, the idea that there are no social classes anymore, which is not the case, but uh, it is how authoritarianism works. And I think like this erasure of the reality of the, of the social classes and struggle is one of the defining features of authoritarianism. But the other trait, the other aspect that she discovers, that she writes about in 1949, just after the Second World War, is uh, the fact that uh, especially Nazism, uh, was especially good as a propagandist regime in implementing this erasure of reality. That is, uh, reality, facts, uh, you know, um, observation, science does not apply anymore. And the only thing that is true and real for the regime, this authoritarian regime, the dictatorship, what is true is um, is imagination. Imagination, like as long as the regime is capable of activating this imaginary world and fantasy of reality that people have, it will be successful, right? And that's what she discovered while while she was studying uh, Nazism. And I think we are in a great time of uh, fantasizing on reality and not dealing with reality. I mean, th this denying of reality uh, and, and turning reality into a fantasy of what we want it to be is uh, a critical marker of dictatorship for Anna Arendt. And I think this is our problem today in America. Uh, I'm, I'm a, but, but it is also according to Baldwin, right? America was built on that. So there's no, no wonder why we have in this time of pandemic an activation of both, of the fact that 
we are erasing reality. And this is a part of, of the DNA of America. This is the etymology of, of America to have denied uh, the primitive, the, the original genocide, the originary even, the original genocide that makes America is the genocide of Native Americans and the destruction of, of slaves through slavery, right? And with this double denial that is the ground on which America is built, well, there's no wonder why we have, you know, statues of Confederate, you know, uh, generals in our cities. Uh, no wonder why we have uh, statues of John Wayne in Orange County, you know, and we suddenly realize in this great time of, of fantasizing and denying reality that the pandemic has, has triggered, that America is probably the only country that has denied the pan pandemic at this scale in the entire world. This is precisely at this time that uh, the great movement that follows the lynching of George Floyd occurs. And I think those two moments, uh, there are two levels of experience that belong to the same cultural, you know, uh, universe, right? And so, I mean, I mean, that's that's one thing. So once you deny reality, then you standardize masses. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, what what occurs here is a reinforcement of the figure of the sovereign, of, of the person who's in charge of the sovereign power, the president, for example, uh, that is reinforced by this. Where it's a self-propelling, you know, fantasy, right? And so now we have a third layer, right? We have the we have the pandemic with the denying of reality that reactivates that denial of reality in America. We have uh, the great awakening of those who have been denied: African Americans, Native Americans the margins of these societies, people who are enlightened like you, like Sergio. Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, the, the counterpart of this, which is a reinforcement of sovereign power, which is the figure of Donald Trump today. Um, we have to deal with this, these three angles, but we have so many critical markers uh, and bad signs right, of what the political transition or the political translation of this could be in the future, um, that I, I really hope that, that we'll be able to do something. But the pandemic is also blocking of us from organizing in so many ways that this, this is even more difficult than ever. So I'm, I don't know. That's <laughs> Excuse me. I, the worry that I have, excuse me, and it's directly tied to well, it's tied to all the, all of the things you mentioned. But I'll, I'll try and pick sort of little pieces. I mean, one of the things that keeps coming up here that leads me to believe that there's not going to be a nice ending, even if the ending is more positive than we want it. You know, I mean, let's say we have a vision for a world. We'll call it roughly, just for the sake of conversation, a socialistic sort of view of the world where we want more people to be taken care of, where we believe that we have the resources to do that, where we want to have a different relationship with the planet, we don't want to exploit and commodify and et cetera, et cetera. The problem that I can see is that these different realities are becoming more entrenched. So there's nothing that leads me to believe that the people who are now fiercely denying climate science, vaccination science, science around the pandemic that they will become increasingly denial, denialist as time goes on. And the people who are in the streets fighting for racial, social justice, economic justice, that they're not going to all of a sudden turn into anti-science denialist people. That in this context, because unlike the 70s and 80s, there's not the sense that you can move on from the 60s, get a good job, raise a family, go buy a house, all these things. That's like, out the window for many people. I think people are going to increasingly see that to be the case as the economy continues to falter, even if Joe Biden is elected, blah, blah, we can, that's a whole nother conversation. But the point I'm making is more so that those, that f the fractured cultural landscape, social landscape that we live within, it is only becoming more and more fractured as this happens. 
So throughout the pandemic, all of those divisions are becoming more and more, you know, uh, stark. That those schisms are deeper than they've ever been. And that coming out of this, even in the most positive way, and I don't want to be too dark for people, but I I don't think you couldn't find a, a future potential scenario that I could agree upon that wouldn't inherently involve uh, extreme tension, uprisings, violence. Uh, the hope, of course, is that that violence could be directed in more revolutionary ways as opposed to, say, a civil war or sectarian violence. We don't want that. But I maybe this is a lack of my own imagination. So there's an argument to be made there that if you can't imagine something other than that, potentially the problem lies within my own inability to uh, imagine a better scenario. But to your point earlier about the ability to predict, of course, it's very difficult to predict precisely what's going to happen. But as the old weather underground saying in the 60s was like, you don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Like the wind is blowing in a very specific direction right now. Um, I think people who are awake, people who are reading, thinking, talking about this, they see that, which is why both sides are freaked out. On the one hand, in the right wing, you have, if we even want to you know, call it that, but that's a, another conversation for another day. But let's say we're just going to use the right-left terminology. On the right, you have people who are wedded to these ideas. They're not going to move away from them. They're armed. They're pissed off. In many ways, they have a reason to be mad, particularly because of the displacement from neoliberalism and all of the things that they've endured as well. Rural communities destroyed, food deserts, manufacturing jobs shipped overseas, et cetera, et cetera. And on the left, you have people who are increasingly angry at a system that they, I think, correctly see as being inherently unjust, more destructive, more violent as time goes on. Um it's hard for me to believe that we come out of this pandemic without, as you know, let me back up for a second. As you know, the history of warfare is very clear. There's one of two things that happens. Either one side is thoroughly defeated, and even then the violence doesn't stop because you have retaliatory violence, you have banditry, you have uh, counter-revolutionary movements, et cetera, et cetera. That's one option. The other option is the two sides destroy each other so much and for long enough to where the two sides just finally say, hey, we give up. You know, here you, it's like the Korean War. It didn't move from the, from the line that it started at. They fought, many people died, there was destruction, and then it was, hey, you've had enough death and destruction, I've had enough death and destruction. Okay, which creates a new line of tension, of course, that could lead to further, you know, violence and chaos. But it's really hard for me to view, and I hate to say that because I think one of the traits we have on the left that the right doesn't have is this ability to generate new realities, new ideas, new concepts for what the world can look like. I mean, at the core of conservatism is the idea that we're going to maintain all of these institutions and that creating new ones could, in fact, be, be a, a terrible thing or would be a terrible thing. But it's hard right now because I know it's a difficult thing as well, Olivier, because if you're doing political organizing work, as you know, part of the task is sort of be like a cheerleader. I mean, part of the problem with politics is that if you want to do it effectively, you can't constantly raise questions every time somebody comes up with an idea. (laughs) You know, you can't, it's like, hey, we're going to do this. And it's like, oh, maybe that won't work, but I could see it from this angle, but I could see this. And you have to, of course, I'm not offering that politics has to be inherently anti-intellectual. But what I am saying is that it's difficult, especially in this society and in this country, you have a lot of people who have to be convinced that by doing something, they can make a difference. There's already a sense amongst most Americans that the system is totally fucked and that no matter what we do, it's not going to make a difference, so why try? Um, Which, by the way, is much different than when I came into politics. It was a different sense of the world, you know, so different challenges. But in so when you're in the position of doing political organizing work or activist work, 
you're trying to convince people and maintain this kind of positive attitude that like, hey, we can get things done. We can do, you know. But this scenario, this situation, I think calls for something much different. I mean, I for me, this scenario, this situation, uh, I think calls for deep reflections about things like death, loss, sacrifice, uh, and those kinds of ideas, ethics, principles are so far removed from the consumer culture that's been inundated by neoliberal capitalism that to get now Americans, so it's not, for me, be the denial stuff for me on the most human level gets back to death. That this, that we, the thing that we want to discuss the least in this culture is dying. And that's, we see that in movies where people live forever. We see that in cartoons and video games. We see this with Ray Kurzweil and the singularity people at MIT. But that for me, it gets beyond even the reality of, of uh, the history of America and what it came from. That I think you're totally right. I mean, I, I, you, couldn't, I, you couldn't have put it better. But for me, on a subjective level, that overlaps with that history. We also live in a culture that history has created subjectivities here in the U.S., where the idea of talking about death is really very taboo and that even to deal with that on a deep level, that's what to me this brings up also, that this pandemic gets to the very core of human problems that we've been trying to cope with for as long as human beings have been human beings and that in a culture that's so superficial and so commercial, uh, commercialized, superficial, consumerism, all of this, that that doesn't lend itself to people saying, Wait, what really matters? You know, oh, I'm not going to be here one day. And in this, this invisible enemy that we face, you can go somewhere, pick it up, be breathing. Three days later, you don't feel well. A week later, you're in the ICU. Two days later, you're dead. Within 10 days, 14 days, it's all over with. And that is not that there couldn't be something more con contradictory or more uh, opposed to the kind of culture that we've created here. Uh, what's absolutely fascinating here is that with the pandemic, we have been reminded, you're right, of these great metaphysical, you know, metaphysical, spiritual questions, you know, you name it, um, which is in philosophy named our finitude, that is, life has an end, right? Um, which is an idea that collapses with the way the system is set up. And the way the system is set up in uh, this late capitalism universe is that uh, life is a fantasy and it has no end. That's the paradigm of capitalism. That is, there's no sunset and sundown in capitalism. You know, the, the, light, the lights of capitalism are never turned off, right? There's no uh, blind spot, right? That's the fan that's um, the capitalist uh, dystopia, right? And the pandemic is reminding us of the fact that, in fact, there's an end to this. Uh, there's one side that is, of course, dark because we think about ourselves, our people who might die. There's another one that keeps denying the fact and that is also involved in the way people deny the need to put a mask on, for example, or deny the uh, threat that this virus could cause, not to just to their loved, loved ones, but themselves. We've seen many anti-masks who died from the pandemic and who, uh, you know, up to their, you know, last minute uh, kept denying the fact that it was uh, COVID-19 or stuff like that. Um, one interesting aspect here, uh, I think, in this discussion is the fact that when we talk, when Anna Arendt, after the Second World War, write on totalitarianism and identifies this marker of Nazism that they denied reality while turning it into a fantasy and using the fantasy in order to activate the Im imagination of masses in order to control them. And she's really astonished to see that as soon as the regime fell, this uh, fantasy world also fell, but very quickly, like in no time, people no longer believed in it. Um, and their lifestyle went back to almost normal. She's really astonished on, on this, about this fact. 
Well, what is extremely tricky, I think, today is uh, what, um, what has been theorized as uh, the alienation of consumers. That is, uh, in late capitalism, what, what we deal with is the worker is alienated at work, right? Work is uh, something that destroys your mind and your body, right? And, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, this is a, a force that, that is so superimposed and pressures the individual that the, the individual's identity disappears is dissolved uh, by, by this process. Well, what a philosopher named Bernard Stiegler that I've quoted in conversations with you uh, highlights uh, in the early 2000s in, in his work is that now what we are seeing is a proletarianization, that is an alienation, a, a subjugation, right, of the consumers. That is, um, today uh, we are... Um, we are oppressed by the way we consume and we are obsessed uh, with consumption. And without this, people are lost. Without their shows, without uh, their, you know, media consumption and so on, um, they're, they're, they're lost. And I think what's interesting here, there are, there are two sides in this. Because when Anna Arendt and when we say that there's a great denial of reality today, um, we are dealing with what? We are dealing with the fact that in fact, it's not just denying reality. I mean, it's not just like for the sake of, of refusing to see the problem, right? It's not just something intellectual. The denial of reality is, is here for a reason. And that reason is that reality is unbearable. It is unbearable. And that's, that's what Stiegler calls this proletarianization of the consumers. That is, and that's one of the legacy of the, uh, of, of, the movements of the 60s that they showed that uh, the political oppression and the oppression perpetrated by capitalism doesn't just occur on the workplace, but also in the mind of the consumers. And, 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 and it has a very perverse effect. That is, the way you try to escape this pain, this unbearable reality today, uh, is still entangled uh, in the way you dream of escaping. In other words, like, this is the dream of the prisoner. And the dream of the prisoner is still a dream that is incarcerated. That is, there's no way out. And that is very difficult. And I think when you talk about the left and the right, the left is missing something important here that the right has not missed. Think about Steve Bannon. Think about those figures, right? I mean, Steve Bannon was the true intellectual figure behind Trump, right? He's understood that reality is unbearable. And so once you turn this unbearable reality into a fantasy of the enemy, you win. You even win the people who are not in agreement with with the political stand that you take as Steve Bannon. Because let's put it that way. We know Steve Bannon and Trump, their ideology is, I believe, uh, the, the ideology of a minority. Now they win the election and they grow because they've been able to convert this unbearable reality into something that is meaningful to everyone as a fantasized solution that is pointing your finger at, you name it, you know, right? I mean, I, I don't even want to go, you know, uh, in this direction, but, but they've pointed their fingers at uh, immigrants, Mexicans, and, and, so, and so forth, right? And so while doing it, they are politically inventing something that is proposing something, and that is kind of like, catalyzing this negative energy of people who cannot deal with reality as it is, right? The problem with the left, I believe, is that the left still believes in things that do not work, right? That is not creating this great catalyzation, like I said about, about the way the right, the extreme right uh, is operating and, and the discourse on the left is tangled in the idea, for example, like uh, 
to reduce pain or to restore, you know, our identities, broken identities and so on. And I think to me, it's addressing the symptoms and not the core of why this reality is unbearable. Why is the reality is unbearable where we have to reread texts that address the roots of this unbearable reality, which is asking the question, like Stiegler is, uh, why is it that people are so dizzy and, and, and destroyed uh, in this you know, consumerism universe? And when I use the word consumerism, it's a very broad term, right? But the way we consume um, social networks and so forth, and of course, you know, cable news, television, Fox News, and so on, they've understood that, that they have a tremendous power here of controlling the brains of the consumers. And that is the greatest challenge, you know, I think, uh, in the way uh, alienation works today. This dimension. Well, one of the things that you made me think of when you mentioned Steigler is this generation of desires. I mean, one of the things that I think of when I think of Steigler's work, well, one of the interesting um, pieces of information I took away, I remember the last time I was reading his work, he had a whole discourse on Ford opening and developing its manufacturing plants at the same time that Hollywood was opening its first major studios. And I just finished, well, Sergio and I both just finished reading Liza Featherstone's uh, book, Divining Desires, which is a history of focus groups where they come from, which actually they come from Red Vienna. I don't know if you knew this, but this is very interesting history. The focus groups, the history of focus groups actually come out of the left. I'll, I'll leave it there because the interview I'll send to you, uh, we did the first part with her a couple of days ago. We're going to do the second part with her on Sunday in a, in a couple of days from now. And thinking about the great pains that powerful people and institutions have gone to in this society to generate desires for consumption, one of the paradoxes, it seems to me, in this new context, what does provide a little hope, I think, some ideological hope, uh, that is that this could be a moment where even the capitalists themselves are going to have a difficult time trying to generate desires if people can't go anywhere. So, yes, you could purchase stuff on Amazon. Yes, you could still purchase digital entertainment and so forth. But there's also been this interesting reaction where people have wanted to go back to doing things like planting gardens, spending. I mean, I can't tell you, I'm sure the same for you, but I'm sure I've had a lot of conversations with people over the last four months who are like, I forgot how much I like to actually cook a meal. I forgot how much it's nice to just sit down and read a book with a glass of wine or something. Like these are these kinds of things that we've we've been sped up so much now with the way that this highly technological society is structured where your home and its kids and this and work and boom, I just got another email. Oh, this person just sent me a text. Ah, oh, I got another phone call I got to make. I mean, it never ends. I mean, you could keep yourself going for for a long time. Now, this isn't the case for everyone. I don't want to sound ignorant, of course, for essential workers and a lot of people. They're just doing... This gets back to this fractured social reality where this. there are some people under this pandemic that life has not changed one bit. Like, I know people whose lives, and different from what you were saying earlier, Olivier, it's not that they've consciously chosen to deny or that they don't want to believe in it, but that they have been put in a position because of a lack of leadership, because of a lack of community, uh, because of a lack of organization, that if you have to go to the grocery store every day and go work, you're going to start normalizing what's happening and just kind of tell yourself, hey, look, you know, fuck it. If something happens, it happens. This is the best I can do. I got to go to work anyway. I can't worry about this every second of every day because I'll drive myself crazier than just the fact that I have to go to work. Um, it would seem to me that one of the things, thinking about how the left has gone wrong and the right has, the right uh, does understand that simply making rational arguments is not enough. Like one of the things, I mean, Sergio, I think has been really harping on this for the last year or so or longer than that. But I mean, definitely, you know, he's been reading a lot of like Bernays and, and we're like thinking like he's been getting into that history of where does this come from? 
propaganda? How do we understand it? How is it utilized? This is something that I think the left has done a terrible job uh, uh, at doing. And I think understanding, in other words, I can see a gap. The reason I brought up Steigler and the the Hollywood studios and, and the pandemic and Ford and all the rest is that there's going to be a sort of desire gap. I've been thinking about it as I was reading the history on focus groups. Then this is just me theorizing. This is not, you know, but it seems to me that in this new context where superficiality and consumerism might be shunned a little bit because people are forced to deal with some very real shit, family members dying, can't go here, can't go there, have to wear a mask, that there's going to be a sort of desire, a gap for desire. That, that at some point, somebody's going to move into this space. It could be the right. It could be religious fanatics. It could be something that we can't even think of right now. Or it can be the left that can, I think, move into this space and create a new sense of desires. And what would that look like in a completely new context, this pandemic context? Um, maybe that's the more positive question to leave today's conversation on. But what do you think about that? that idea. I mean, this was something that just came to me as we're talking about this today. And as I mentioned, thinking a little bit about this history of focus groups and how we're generating desires, even the capitalists are going to have a very difficult time. The economy is shrinking and contracting. People have less money. People are stuck at home. People are thinking about very real things. This whole situation is about to get very real for people over the fall and winter. It's hard to then, you know, even as you're watching TV, for advertisers to jump to some, you know, commercial where kids are dancing around and being like, hey, guys, let's go to Chuck E. Cheese's. And it's like, <laughs> after you just saw a segment about how the whole world's falling apart, this is becoming, it's becoming increasingly difficult for the capitalists to bridge the gap between reality, how brutal reality is, the unbearable nature of reality, and the consumption that continues the system. And that consumption based on all kinds of fantastical desires about what life could be or the lifestyle we want to live or the person I want to be. A lot of that is very difficult to fulfill in this new context. So I think there's an opening to create new desires. And that, I think, opens the door for different cultural mediums, thinkers, writers, activists, artists, all kinds of people to fill that gap and make it a more meaningful uh, desires, you know, not ones created by capitalists and in industry and so forth. Well, I, I, um, the first thing that I would like to say about this when go back goes back to what you indicate when you talk about a fractured society, because it's true. And this is a great difference between, uh, you know, the dictatorships during the Second World War and what we are seeing today it is the fact that um, previous dictatorships like Nazism that I've mentioned to just keep this example uh, they culminate in this, uh, that I call this standard, standardization of society, which takes us back to Stiegler, because Stiegler is right. He noticed that back in 1912, when Fordism is invented, uh, the first studios in Hollywood uh, are created, which is on the one hand, we have this old model of... Um, alienation in the workplace, which is the, the other name of Fordism, like doing these mechanical movements all day long and not being a human anymore, but uh, a part of the machinery of product, production, right? Of, of this factory that produces cars, right? And on the other hand, Hollywood, which is one of the defining features, not only of modernity, right, cinema, but also of America. There would not be America as we know it today without its cinema. And I'm saying it also as, as, as an immigrant because I grew up in the US before even seeing the US, before setting foot on the US soil because I was a consumer of American movies because the standard, talk about standards, standardization, the standard of how we conceive imaginary, imag imaginary worlds and fiction today is tied to, um, to the production of films in the US, which is why also when Baldwin uh, writes this posthumous text, that text that came to us after his death, uh, he's always referring to movies, right? 
because he knows all too well that one of the symptoms of the oppression of African Americans in the US today, when he writes back in 1984, 87, when he writes this text, one of the defining features of this, this oppression of African Americans lies in its cinema. That's why he's interested in John Wayne. That's why he's interested in the cinema of the 20s, of the 30s, and the figures of, of, of Blacks in this cinema and so forth. So it is very interesting here that this fractured society is something like a novelty, that never have we had uh, a society that in a way is standardized in the way people have their own tunnel visions, right? But we all have this mm -hmm. inner world in which we can live in echo chambers of what we're interested in, like this computerized uh, logarithm, right? That, that controls our lives when we consume on the internet, right? Because the computer knows who you are and so forth, you know how it works. So we have this fractured society, that's true, but that at the same time is an hyper standardization in which between the cracks, you have what, what you described extremely well, that is perhaps pockets of autonomy that are more powerful than ever. We would not even have this conversation with, with, without what I'm describing now, which is this pocket of autonomy that you can build and that can be extremely influential. And I think, I mean, that is something that, that can be a vector for uh, resistance. That could be that I know, I mean, you, some people might have seen the, the movie on Cambridge Analytica, right? Uh, the Great Hack, right? The Great Hack is the dystopia of what I'm describing. That is taking control of what uh, the users of social networks, and especially the ones who are undecided, and use the logarithm in order to influence their votes, which is this, the, the story behind Cambridge Analytica, which again goes back to Steve Bannon, who's really the mastermind behind the election of Donald Trump in 20, 2016, right? So we have that, but we also have the, this, what Felix Guattari called the molecular revolution. That is the possibility of using this system against this uh, totalitarian tendency. And I think that is something that, that we are doing right now, uh, that many people are doing, um, and that is only increased with the pandemic. And I think, I mean, when we go back to the great movement that took place, that takes place after the lynching of George Floyd, well, without this use of the, of the media, without this autonomy, we would never have been able to organize and demonstrate like the way we did. So that, that's one thing. And I think that this is a major point of resistance against authoritarianism. Now, there's another thing, and I really, I also believe in that, uh, something that appears with the pandemic is mutual aid. Like people care for their, their neighbors more than ever. And I think this is, this is something that is also explaining why this, there was this vast movement around Black Lives Matter with an unprecedented number of white folks involved. That is unprecedented. And I think that this is one of the signs of resistance that we are seeing, right? That could, that could you know, help of us finish on a more positive note because getting out of the pandemic, but, but it will requires a lot of work and organizing. And I think what happened with, with for example, with the campaign, uh, with the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign four years ago and this year uh, is also a part of this. Like there are more people who are ready to accept ideas and even ideologies that were deemed uh, unacceptable, uh, not even 10 years ago, right? And I think that is also a major change. So I don't know. <laughs> No, that's a good, <laughs> that's a really nice way to end. That's a beautiful way to end. I appreciate it. I think it's good. No, because I was, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, man. I want to at least, but I don't want to take too much of your time. I, and plus what I want to do, Olivia, is I want to break it up. Yeah. So we could have another one. We'll talk for an hour and a half next time. And yeah. it's also yeah. in this weird world that we've been in. This has been like our opportunity to reconnect with people. I know. 
I know. It's I mean, like, hey, can we interview you so we could talk? I could drive to your place in less than an hour, and here we are obliged to do it. Even if I lived down the street in in Michigan City, we could probably not do that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's you know. So yeah, yeah, anytime. Excellent, man. Thank well, you. There's just one thing I want to say: history is not the past. I just want to finish with James James Baldwin. History yeah. is not the past. History is how we deal with the present. That's one one of the lessons is teaching us. James Baldwin. I agree. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now we need people we need uh we need the inability for us to get people to think about themselves as historical subjects is one of our yeah. major challenges. Yes. No question. Yes. All right, Olivier, love you. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Let me... Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below, also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.